What is up, y'all? We have some amazing guests lined up for 2022. We're talking about new topics, new ideas. It's going to be awesome. For today, while we're gearing up for all that, we're going to take a look back at one of our favorite episodes of the last year, Understanding Fatherhood with Kiyoki Kananoi. We're digging in the archives, but we'll see you next week with some brand new material. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this episode are that of the guest and host and do not necessarily reflect the values of sponsors or other associated organizations. Welcome to the Parental Compass with Bobby Williams. I am your host, Bobby Williams. I want to start by giving a big shout out to Family Education and Support Services. They are the organization that creates this show. They make the whole thing happen. So shout out to FESS. As always, subscribe to us on Apple Music or Spotify, or check us out at parentalcompass.org. Fatherhood. Undervalued, but as important as ever. My guest today is Kiyoki Kawanoi, who has worked with thousands of fathers across Washington. He is the director of fatherhood engagement for family education and support services. And we, we cover a lot of ground in this one. I just want to dive right in. So let's do it. Parental compass. You know, a dad or a mom, they sometimes take on different roles. Like dads are more likely to rough house. And that's actually a good thing or helps with development. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So the research indicates that from between the ages of two and four, dads are responsible for verbal communication, for their children learning how to communicate verbally. And one of the reasons for that is because dads do this thing called upspeak. Moms tend to do this thing called baby speak, which is great and it serves other functions. But upspeak, um, is the use of polysyllabic words and complex sentence structure. And it kind of challenges the toddler and the baby's mind to, to stretch their brains a little bit more, to try to mimic that sentence structure and to just be able to say those, those complex words. But the research goes even farther than that to show that, especially with like the style of play dads have roughhousing, mm -hmm. um, Dads are also responsible for learning nonverbal communication and understanding nonverbal cues. All that roughhousing and wrestling with the dad with dad teaches children lots of things. It teaches them trust. It also teaches them a sense of boundaries. It's like when dad is throwing us up in the air, it's a little scary because we're up in the air, but we also learn trust that dad's gonna be there to catch us, you know, keep us. Mm -hmm. um, so it kind of teaches us boundaries. And it, the rough housing kind of helps us to extend past boundaries, to do a little healthy risk-taking, and that's important. But the, the big thing that I'm looking at with the research is that all that face-to-face -face interaction with dad, the child is also learning to read facial cues. And that's why we, we know that not only are dads responsible for language development, but also wit and sarcasm come from 
hanging out with dad. So I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. If you have sarcastic kids, it's probably the dad's fault. But that's not a bad thing, right? Because sarcasm is just the ability to have one thought, but two different meanings in, in your head at the same time. And that's, mm -hmm. that's great. But here's the point about the nonverbal stuff. Um, a lot of times I'll have situations with, with kids that are like, there's a fight in the, in the playground. And the fight was between two friends uh, where somebody said something and then, and then they literally came to blows. And then both one or both kids get labeled as troublemakers or anger management problems. But when you get down to it and you look at, at the situation, what really happened was one of the kids, his dad wasn't there, especially in that two to four year window. So they didn't learn to read uh, nonverbals. So kid A is, you know, is, is uh, you know, razzing his friend like kids do and says something as a joke or as being sarcastic. But because kid B couldn't understand the body language and the tone, he took it, he took it as serious, not as sarcasm as a joke. And then he reacts to that. And yeah. so what we see there is it's not a, necessarily a behavior problem as much as a communication problem. It's interesting how it just develops, your whole development is tied into it a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. And another thing parents or dads could argue sometimes is like, well, they're not going to remember these early years that I'm with them anyway. So it's, it's yeah. forgivable a little bit to miss out on it. Yeah, I hear that a lot. And actually, what you're describing, I feel is is a serious problem. I have a lot of dads come to me with their sense of fatherness degraded because they hear messages like that and then they they internalize them and then they believe it. Um, so like that one, or if I if I spend time with my baby, they're not gonna they're not gonna remember it. So why even do it? But the reality is, what what you're talking about is a relationship, and a relationship is is two way. And will your baby not remember? Will your child not remember what you did? I, I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, but I do know that, that the father will. The father will remember those times when he fed baby, did late night feeding, or, or swaddled and held the baby and walked him around in the middle of the night. Dad will remember that for the rest of his life. And that is going to impact the child through the child, childhood and adulthood. Yeah. Uh-huh. Just the dad remembering too. That's huge. Yeah. yeah. It's a two-way relationship. You know, I was thinking about how the biggest dialogue we ever have in our lives is with ourselves. And my question, I guess, is how does your dad or your parents influence that internal voice that's always going on in your head? Because oh, it's one you can never escape from no matter what. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. In fact, I have a saying in my class, the way that you talk to your children now become their permanent inner voice. And I know that's true because in my dad's class, we've also had uh, granddads. And uh, we, were, we had a section where we were talking about self-talk, the unconscious messages that you hear usually in your, own in your own head, you know, daily. And the research shows you can get somewhere around 5,000 self-talk messages a day and 80% of them are negative. So I'm talking with his granddad about negative self-talk and he realizes that the negative self-talk and, and he's like in his seventies, the mm -hmm. negative self-talk that he's heard his entire life was something his dad said to him when he was seven, when he was seven, he said one thing and it repeated in his head his whole life. 
Wow. So, yeah. And so that got us to talking, you know, it, there are a lot of times when we say things that we regret, you know, um, but if that is the case, that the way we talk to our kids now becomes their, their permanent inner voice, then we should probably take some time to sit down and ask ourselves, what do we want to say to our kids that we never want to take back, that we want them to hear resonating in their head for the rest of their life, and particularly in times of challenge or hardship? Mm-hmm. I guess you got Yeah, you got to be really thoughtful of what you say to your kids. Yeah. <laughs> Gee, um, sometimes I'll catch myself like I remember when my dad would get mad as a kid, he would just be like, damn it. And like say it like a very particular way. And then as an adult, I'm having like times of frustration. I remember once just sort of being like, damn it. And it's like, whoa, that's that's like my dad's voice coming out of my body. And then it got me thinking about how we really mimic our parents in a way, like throughout our lives. But what about when it comes to parenting? People might think like, well, my dad had some issues as a parent, and now I'm doing the same things or similar things. Can, yeah. can you change that? Oh, yeah, you can totally change that. I, I, I was teaching this dad's class at Green Hill uh, Juvenile Facility. And there was a there was a kid there, man. We were we we're just starting class. I can't remember what the question was, but he he basically said, you know, um, my dad ran out on me when I was a kid. I'm probably gonna run out on my kid. My dad, my dad did crime, I'm doing crime. My dad went to prison, I'm probably going to prison. And uh, <laughs> simple words, but uh, I, I just looked at him and said, No, you you are not your father, and you don't have to be your father, you can be anybody you want to be. And I continued class, and uh, but I was keeping my eye on him. And you yeah. can tell that was bouncing around in his head. He was thinking about it. At the end of class, he came up to me after everybody had left, and he was like, "Is that true? Is that true? Do I, do I?" And I told him, "You're not your dad. You can be whoever you want to be." And in fact, that reminds me of another situation where we were talking about this very thing about patterns, and I'll get into that later. Mm-hmm. But um, same place, different class. And this young Samoan guy said, you know, when I get out of here, I want to take my family and I want to move us out of Hilltop. I don't want to raise my kids in Hilltop. The problem is my dad raised me um, the way he grew up in Samoa. And I understand that now. And I understand that that didn't work for me because I'm in, we live in Tacoma, not in Samoa. But my worry is... I want to take my kids somewhere better, somewhere safer, but every na- any neighborhood we go to, Hilltop is in me. And, and I'm worried that I'll take Hilltop. Uh, I can take me out of Hilltop, but you can't take yeah. Hilltop out of me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you could tell that that was really bothering him. But we, we talked about it. And the thing is, you're, you don't have to be your dad. You don't. One of the things that we talk about in class is that human beings are pattern animals. Yeah. Uh, follow patterns we look for patterns and we find them even if a pattern isn't there and patterns don't have to be good or bad or positive or negative for us to follow them um and in times of stress or hypervigilance, we revert to a previous pattern no no matter how much we didn't like it right the only time and this is why i told that guy this, this kid the only time i've seen somebody change a pattern is if one they acknowledge they're in a pattern two they make a conscious choice not to do that pattern. And three, the most important one, because we're pattern animals, 
Number three is have an alternate pattern. Yeah. Right. And so the example I give in class is you have a child who goes into a room, sees a crayon, starts writing on a wall. Parent comes in, says, hey, knock that off and then leaves. And the child sits there and you took his pattern away and he doesn't know what to do now. Right. No, there's no alternate pattern. So what does he do? He reverts to the previous pattern, gets on the wall. Ch parent comes in and the pattern starts. Child does something they're not supposed to do. Parent scolds them for it. Child feels bad, but doesn't know what to do about it. And then repeats the pattern. It, mm -hmm. it starts off on this other pattern. Had the parent at the beginning said, you know, gone through those three steps. Hey, we don't, that's not what we do with the wall or the crayon. I'm going to give you a piece of paper. You can draw anything you want on that paper. And then we're going to put it, we're going to hang it up on the wall or put it on the fridge and you can do it all you want. Yeah. That, that covers the three things, right? Acknowledge the pattern, choose not to be in that pattern and have an alternate pattern. But what about like as an adult, I yell at my child when they spill juice on the carpet or something. How would you apply those rules to that? Yeah, well, you know, actually, I, I reflect back on one of your previous episodes with my colleague, uh, Scott Hanauer, uh -huh. uh, when he was talking about power struggles. The, the first thing to do is, you know, acknowledge the situation. Here's an example of that. So... I have diabetes and I didn't know I had diabetes and diabetes makes you grumpy. One day I my, my middle son, I walked into the room, into the kitchen and I see my middle son there, his back is towards me. And I say, Hey, why, what's up? And he doesn't say a thing. And I, Hmm. So I say it louder. Hey, why, what's up? Still nothing. Now I'm mad because now it's, it's, he's ignoring me and yeah. he's been very disrespectful. Right. And so the third time I'm about, I'm about to shout. I, you know, and at that moment, Wyatt turns around, I see his earbuds, he pulls his earbuds off and he goes, hey, dad, what's up? <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, which is all, which is all I ever wanted to do, right? Well, that's what I wanted. But this is, this was the thing. And this might go into a little deeper than the discussion. But at the third time, the thought in my head was, my dad would not put up with that disrespect. Mm -hmm. You know, and at that moment, that's when I, that's when I, went through this process of realizing there are physical triggers and there are emotional triggers. And for me dealing with my kids, an emotional trigger that will let me know, hey, I need to step back a little bit is when my inner voice says, my dad wouldn't put up with that. Then that stops me and I realize this isn't about me and my kids now. This is about me when I was their age and my dad. And I need to back it up uh, and come into this moment and see what's going on here. Yeah. And so it's that aware, getting back to your original question, self-awareness, where you're at now. Mm -hmm. you know? And actually another thing, this usually takes a couple of weeks in class, but one of the things I talk about with uh, my students in, in my class is uh, this idea that there are three sections to the three sections of the brain, survival brain, feeling brain, and thinking brain. Yeah. And, in thinking brain, you have executive function, which helps you uh, manage your emotions. But that, you know, as we know, that doesn't get kicked until later. So basically what's happening is in childhood, our kids are in their emotional brain most of the time. And a lot of the stuff that they're dealing with is being in an emotional brain, having feelings, but not knowing what those feelings are and getting overwhelmed by them. This is the thing when we're arguing or we're upset with our kids, we have to ask ourselves, do we want to be talking to that thinking part of the brain or do we want to be talking to the feeling part of the brain? 
Uh, there's a third part, the survival brain. And a lot of things parents do put their kids in their survival brain. But what I'm kind of hearing you say is when you yell or you get intense with your kids, that's putting them in survival mode. Yes. It's not really teaching them the lesson you're trying to get across. Well, not only that, but research shows when you activate the survival brain, the midbrain basically says you're in a threatening situation and, and the brain can't tell the difference between an actual threat and a perceived threat. Yeah. That's why we respond to people cutting us off in the traffic circle the same way we responded to saber-toothed tigers thousands and thousands of years Interesting. ago. Yeah. yeah. So to help you, so, so when there's a threat, when the brain perceives a threat, it says, ooh, you don't have time to calmly think the best possible way out. So I'm not giving it to the thinking brain. I'm going to give it to the survival brain because it's a threat. And when it goes to the survival brain, you only get four reactions, fight, flight, freeze, or fold. To help you react even faster, the brain does another thing. It injects cortisol into your thinking brain so you can't think anymore. And so think of a time when you were so angry that you didn't care what was going to happen next. You were going to say what you were going to say, or you're going to do what you're going to do, and that's it. Then you do it, and then after that, you're like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Dang. Yeah, the brain process there is your brain perceived the situation as a threat, gave you those four reactions, fight, flight, freeze, fold, and to help you, turned your executive function off so you can't think of cause and effect. And that's that part where you don't care anymore. It's not that you don't care. It's that your thinking is turned off. So yeah, we put our kids in into those situations all the time. So if you want to, to speak to your children in a way that they'll understand and remember, don't turn their brain off. Do what you need to do to get them to uh, their thinking calm brain. And I'll give you one example of how I did that once, okay. if I may. All right. So um, my youngest son, Liam, uh, we we're having a play date with this other little girl, same age. And uh, they bought, they, they slammed into each other and they had skin their knees and they were gravel in their knees. And the little girl was had, had a complete meltdown. And the mom said, when you hear that scream, she's going to do that for an hour and a half. Oh, okay. So the mom put her screaming child next to me on the park bench. And then she went to go get her first aid kit. And I did what I, what I would do with Liam, which is I would let him experience the moment that he was in, even if it, it made him sad, because that's important. Experience what you're in. But then I, I want to move them from their feeling brain to their thinking brain. So I would ask Liam, questions that required him to do math or sequentially. So that's what I asked this little girl. I said, um, so what happened? Did this happen? And I gave, you know, the five steps that led to the skin knee, but I did it out of order. And then she go, no, first this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And then I was like, and how many, was that six times, seven times? And she had, so she moved from her feeling and emotion brain into her analytical thinking brain and the crying stopped went in under a minute. Thank you so much for taking the time and being here. And this is fascinating stuff. So I, I just really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, me too. I get excited about it. I get excited about it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad that we have this venue where we can sit and talk about topics that are really important. One of the things that the dads say in my dad's classes, they wish that they had a safe place where they could talk about just being dad. They have places for their to talk about being plumbers or electricians or sports, but they don't have a safe place where they can talk about their, their insecurities or worries. And so I just like them to know that we have that. Yeah, I think the more places in general where 
men can feel comfortable being vulnerable, the better, because that's something we're trying to counteract in society today. Thank you again, Kiyoki. You know, we just skim the surface here. It's a 20 minute show, so we can only do so much, but there is more information out there. I, I wanted to let you know about the Washington State Fatherhood Summit that is a free virtual event happening March 15th. So I encourage you to register. There's gonna be Kiyoki alongside a lot of other amazing speakers. Just go to wafatherhoodcouncil.org and you can learn about that amazing event. On behalf of Family Education and Support Services, this has been The Parental Compass. We'll see you next week. Peace.